Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, the ironic thing about our digital devices is that they promise constant stimulation, and yet we find they end up making us feel numb. Numb in terms of struggling to be present, numb in feeling overloaded with information and choices, numb in feeling like we often view even our own experiences from a third-party perspective. My guest today, Dr. Charles Chafin, has written a book called Numb, How the Information Age Dulls Our Senses and How We Can Get Them Back, which explores the various ways internet-induced numbness manifests itself from FOMO to choice overload on dating apps. On the show today, we focus in particular on how the news media and social media can negatively alter the way we experience life and what to do about it. We first discuss how recovering our sense of engagement with life begins with thinking about the fact that our attention is a finite resource and being intentional about how we direct that resource. We then discuss how to deal with what Charles calls the intention panhandlers who vie for an engagement online. Charles also talks about the phenomenon of compassion fatigue, where there's so many worthy causes you could take up that you end up doing nothing at all. And we then discuss how Instagram can change the way you experience life in an age where we can all feel like content creators. And we end our conversation with how to wrest back control of your attention and use it towards action rather than distraction. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash numb. All right, Charles Chafin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you got a new book out called Numb, How the Information Age Dulls Our Senses and How We Can Get Them Back. So this book was inspired by this realization that you just felt like the internet was making you feel numb. When did that start happening and when did you start noticing it? Yeah, you know, it started really thinking about, but my area of study is attention. So obviously thinking about the attention economy that we live in and devices and whatnot that are competing for our attention. But, you know, one of the other elements that was key to to this book is the notion of compassion. And I, and I started thinking about the regular access that we have to stories of human suffering and tragedy and some of the sensationalism or vivid pictures and videos that we see all the time on news and social media. And, and I started to think about, well, given seeing all this all the time, how does that affect our ability to be compassionate and responsive to the people that are around us, the people in our lives? And, and then gradually, as I started thinking about this from a more 360-degree view, I, I wanted to look at not only attention, which is the basis for so much of numb, but I also wanted to think about all the byproducts of this information age, which is you know everything from FOMO, confirmation bias, and choice overload, loneliness, and, and even porn and dating sites, and, and really look at how all of that, all of the things that are grabbing our attention and also creating what I'll call processed experiences that impact our lives in some way, shape, or form. I think all of us experience that that numbness and feeling of just like, I just can't, I can't process anything anymore. I don't, like you read stuff and it's just, you feel dull when you read it. You don't want to do anything. I mean, how would you describe that numb feeling of information overload? I think it's a it it is an element of separating what is real and what isn't on some level, right? It kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier: is that this idea of processed experiences, right? That we read about something, whether it's whether it's an event, whether it's political, whether it's interpersonal, or it's a video, or even if it's pornography, and it starts to we start to we start to have a difficulty in separating what is real and what is a depiction of reality and how that impacts how we interact with with the with the world around us so i see the element of numb and where the title came from 
is this idea of just just constantly having these waves of new information, new videos, new processed experiences washing on the shores of our attention, if you will, that creates this this feeling where we we start to not be able to separate what's what's real from what's not, what's relevant from what's irrelevant. All right. So as you said, in your book, um, you walk readers through different ways information overload from the internet can make us feel discombobulated, sort of the detachment from lived experience instead of you know, processed experience. But as you said, underlying all this feeling of numbness is a, what you would say is a mismanagement of attention. And this is your area of expertise. So let's start off there. Like what, what is attention? I think it's I think we might know what we think it is, but how, in your work, line of work, how do you define attention? Yeah, we, you know, we throw that word around a lot, but attention at the at the very highest level, it's the pathway to our consciousness. You know, everything that we work, everything that we experience or sense is via our attention. You know, you can think about it this way, you know, that if we want something to go well or we want to experience it, we focus our attention on it. Or maybe better better stated, if we don't want something to go well, we we don't focus our attention on it and with that it's kind of like this the uh, vividry of a kind of a of a spotlight where we're shining it on a specific experience a specific item at the expense of other things and so given where we are in the information age where we have so much of that coming at us that spotlight or where we manage that spotlight becomes incredibly important added to that we only have a fixed amount of it. So if I'm focusing all of my attentional resources on something, I'm really focusing. I don't have more to add. I can't add it or, or separate it into some element of multitasking. So given the fact that it's the attention to all, or it's the, it's the gateway to all we experience and that it's fixed, it is in, in my world, it's the most important commodity that we have. I think that's an important point that attention is fixed because I think we, the way we often treat it, at least I, maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience, that attention is infinite, right? You have, you always have attention. You might have not have, like money is finite because you can see it and hold it, but attention, oh, well, I've got plenty of attention. Yeah, right. I mean, the greatest example of the idea of fixed attention is 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 distracted driving, right? I mean, so you only have so much attention when you're driving. If someone or something, even if it's a if it's texting or whatever it is, it's taking away from the amount of fixed attention you have. You don't when you're driving. You don't say, "Okay, I'm going to find more attention, keep the same amount of attention on the road in my vehicle, and add more to to texting or talking to someone." And we all think, of course, that we can multitask when we effectively can't. There's a there's essentially becomes a, an element of a of a cognitive bottleneck that we have where the, the tasks don't happen simultaneously, but they they happen one after another. And so we are constantly thinking that we multitask and that we multitask well, but in reality we don't. We at best can switch our attention between two things at once. And that attention switching, that can be tiring. That's probably what contributes to a lot of the numb feeling. Just like, I just feel like a, a, a haze is in my brain. Well, it's, yeah, that attention switching, you're, you, that expends energy. You can't do that all the time. That's right. You can't, you can't do it all the time. And you're, again, you're constantly, you know, if you're, if you're working on something and you're, you're really focused on a report or whatever it might be, and you're distracted in some way, it can take upwards of 15 or 20 minutes for you to get that same level of attention back to where you were before you were distracted. So you think about two or three distractions in a given day, 
And that really, really adds up. So it does come at, a, at an incredible cost, whether it's devices or other humans or whatever it might be that take away from, from this valuable cognitive resource. So uh, if you look back at human history, people have been complaining about their attention being mismanaged or they just, they can't focus. You see monks doing this. You think monks wouldn't have, wouldn't have a problem with staying focused because they're cloistered in some cell. But so this is a universal human problem, but you make the case that our digital technology just exacerbates this problem. I mean, how does digital technology disrupt our attention? Well, I mean, if you think about it in terms of we have devices and platforms that are designed to grab and keep our attention. So, you know, at a 30,000 foot level, living in an attention economy where in essence, getting your attention is actually more important than getting your wallet because I can't get your wallet or if I'm trying to get your, your work or your affection from you or whatever it might be, I can't get that until I get your attention first. So these devices and platforms are developed really, really well to disrupt our attention. And it happens through a couple of different ways, right? So push notifications is always the most the most famous example where we, we, we get some sort of sound or we get some sort of sight trying to take our attention to, to a platform, one platform or another. But the, one of the bigger elements though that comes in many of these platforms is, is something called operant conditioning. And that is basically where we have a reward system that can keep an individual engaged in something. So for example, on social media, where there's a lot of attention panhandling going on, whether it's between the platform or individuals, but essentially if we, we give a reward structure where what's called a variable reward structure, meaning if I want you to do something one time, I will give you a reward after you do it once. If I want you to do it continuously, I'm going to do this variable reward strategy, meaning you could do it three times and get the reward. You could do it 10 times and get the reward. You could do it 30 times and get the reward, but you don't know when it's coming. And so you constantly are repeating that action or that behavior, you know, and it's, it's most famously, you know, it goes way back into B.F. Skinner, who was a, a famous psychologist from the middle part of the 1900s. You know, he did this with pigeons and with all kinds of animals. And in fact, you could go onto YouTube and watch him. He trained pigeons to, to peck at uh, enemy ships. To, to guide missiles. And they hooked up electrodes to the beaks and, and he was, he got Navy funding to do it. It was right before whatever you call it, missile guided systems. But he gave those pigeons and, you know, there were rats and other animals, these, these variable reward structures to have them continuously repeat this behavior so that, you know, not knowing when the reward was going to come. And that's what we see on social media. We also see it in things like slot machines and whatnot, but we don't know when that like or that attention panhandling, going back to that, that reward, we don't know when it's going to come. So we're constantly revisiting those sites. We're constantly posting and reposting to get that reward. No, speaking of that very, you know, companies using that variable reward to their advantage, like I know Instagram does this, like they will, when you check to see how many likes you have, sometimes they'll wait until you have a bunch of likes you know, built up and then they'll show you, oh, a hundred yep. likes. This is great. And then, so you want to check, but then the next time it's only 20. Oh, okay. And yep. then they, they build it up. No, it's a hundred. You know, it's even to the point where the notifications are in red, right? And, and I mentioned slot machines. It's the same thing. So if you go into a casino and you play even a penny slot, you, you may win a nominal amount of money 
at one point, but it's celebrated as a huge victory, right? So that it's, it's going to have you continuously playing and, you know, in a timeless place with no clocks. But again, you can find ways to hold, hold back those rewards to get you to continuously repeat that behavior again and again and again. And when it comes to, you know, things like social media, this kind of goes back to where we started here with attention that comes at an enormous cost. You know, when we see people, who are on these platforms for two, three, four hours a day. And what I tried to do with Numb, it wasn't to say to people, you know, what you're doing is wrong and this is all bad. You should, you know, go on a dopamine fast and forget it. But what I wanted to do is, is lead the reader through a reflective process and ask, is this working for me? At the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of my life, the two, three, and four hours a day that I'm spending in this artificial reward platform and, you know, getting into, and it's the same thing, by the way, when we're talking about, you know, breaking news and, and, and all of the, and many of the elements of outrage. But at the end of the day, was this worth it for me? Did, was this a good investment of my time? Did it lead me to more productivity or more authenticity or better relationships? And so I hope that, that having a better understanding of what these platforms are designed to do, folks can make that decision on their own. Well, speaking of breaking news, one of the chapters in the book you devote to how the media uses our understanding of what grabs our attention to their benefit and the way the media companies make their monies through ad dollars. A lot of them are moving to subscription, but you know, still ad dollars is a big part of that. Sure. But to get those ad dollars, they, like you said, they need our attention first. So knowing that, how do media companies use what they know about what grabs our attention to get our attention? Well, well I'll tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is if you're watching cable news and someone says, well, you know, coming up, I just want to let you all know everything is fine here. <laughs> right. So the, the, the best way to do it is to, is to showcase some element of threat or outrage, which activates our amygdala, that part of our brain that helps keep us safe and detecting from threats and makes us more engaged. Right. And so, you know, any type, any element of sensationalism or opinion is going to, is going to drive people towards either coming onto the platform or, or staying onto the platform. And what, what I ask the reader to do in NUM is to think about an element of transparency and reporting of their outlets. So I don't advocate what many people say is, you know, you know, listen to parts of the left and listen to parts of the right and have a cocktail of opinions, but rather look for transparency. And then secondly, think about, you know, how much time are you consuming this news and information? Are, you know, are you, are you stuck on cable news for two hours or are you arguing with people on Twitter about conspiracy theories for hours a day? But finding out, okay, where have I reached this point where I'm starting to get this, what's called headline fatigue, where I have just too much? Finding out that I'm, I'm informed as a, as a voter, as a citizen, as an investor, whatever it might be, I'm informed and I, and I can move on without having it take over my life. But, with this topic of news and information and many of these other platforms, it really is understanding that there's a Venn diagram between 
what these platforms are trying to do, which is bring in our attention and deliver us to marketers as the product, and what we're trying to do, in this case, to be well-informed, and realizing, okay, there's a crossover there, but this isn't solely designed to just keep me informed, and I have to manage it without it managing me. Well, speaking of social media, a lot of the outrage that you see on social media that people are just tired of is caused by these stories that are you know negative based because again that's what grabs our attention we have a negativity bias when things are good we don't even it's not even on the radar when things are good but what is it about social media that tends to have people just continually wanting to be outraged and just say hot takes and get in fights is it something about the the platforms themselves that encourage that or is that just or is just do the platforms manifest our innate human nature? We, we always say we want good news, but in lots of research studies, individuals are presented with good news and bad news, and they're just drawn to the bad news. And it goes back to this idea of detecting threats. But I think when it comes to social media, a lot of this has to do with attention panhandling. So we tend to connect on social media with like-minded individuals, whether it's politically, socially, it could even be geographically. And with so much of this, there is a currency of attention. And we want, we're seeking attention from others. You know, I, I use that term attention panhandling. And so in order for us to get attention, we can do that in a lot of different ways. And, you know, we could do that through selfies. We could do that through engaging other people and being funny. But, but when it comes to outrage, the best way for us to do that is to either A, be a source of information that we think is going to outrage the other people within my tribe or within these like-minded individuals. Or secondly, that I can be articulate that I have the highest amount of outrage than anyone else around. So I always think about the analogy of the weight room in the gym. And if I want attention in that weight room and everybody's in there, you know, lifting weights, I need to lift the heaviest weight to show that I'm the, you know, I, I'm going to get the attention and, and be the most devoted here uh, within this platform, which, you know, I can't even come up with that example well, because I'm not, uh, uh, yeah, I don't lift a lot of weights clearly, but, you know, we don't get attention on social media by saying, you know, let's think carefully about this and let's, let's weigh both sides of the issues. We, we basically have to showcase we're the most devoted. We're taking the most moral high ground and being the most upset, right? And there's some of this that has to do too with fear and people are, you know, people are scared when they see these sort news sources talking about threats and there's elements of loneliness. But in reality, it really goes back to getting attention and, and we can, we can be the most outraged and get the most attention. And the byproduct of that can be conspiracy theories or people moving to even more of the fringes of our society regarding a lot of different topics. Yeah, you highlight research by Jillian Jordan, who explored people who get upset on behalf of other people. So they, they're, they're claiming some offense on behalf of some other person that you know, they're, they're not the victim. And what they found is that people who do that, who found that uh, third-party punishers, what they're called, Right, they yep. gain trustworthiness by signaling some sort of offense. Right, so the, it is an, it is a currency. You that's how you can get attention is by being offended for yourself or on behalf of someone else. 
Yes. And, and of course, there's a downside to that, even in that study, where if you take it too far, then you suddenly lose that currency, right? You take it too far in your language and whatnot on social media, and you actually start to, it starts to work works counterintuitively as a, as a diminishing return. But uh, absolutely, if I want to show that I am, you know, the most devoted to the cause, then I've got to be the most upset to get that attention. Absolutely. And do you think we, at, at a, some level, humans like to feel outraged, like it feels good to be outraged? I don't, I find it, I find it difficult to imagine that people enjoy being upset all of the time. And I, I also think too, if, and, and, and in the book, I, I talk about a couple of pieces that ran in, in a few years ago, you know, talk about the year of outrage and they outline all, you know, 365 days. What was the most outrageous thing that people, you know, got, were so upset on Twitter about? And you look back upon those things now and, you know, there were a few big, things. I mean, one was 2014, and there were a few major issues that happened in that time and events that required action. But so much of it was just meaningless and trivial, you know, looking at it even from a couple of years, a couple of years removed. So I think people can experience outrage fatigue. But again, it's no different than people who are attention panhandling and changing their life experiences to be a content creator on Instagram. It's it's kind of the same thing. And it goes back to an ROI. Is this investment of my attention and all the all the things I'm trying to do on social media, is it really working for me? And I think with folks with outrage, I think they would argue that it isn't. Have you figured out a way to use social media without getting outraged? Well, there's a few things. I mean, so... First and foremost, you know, who we're engaging is critical, you know, for a lot of different reasons. So, you know, we talk about, you know, Dunbar's number, which is about 150 people that we tend to be able to have relationships with. And that could be anything from high school classmates to, to coworkers and family members. And so I'll, I'll answer your question kind of in a 30,000 foot view and say, you know, if we're, if we're using social media to engage issues with people in our lives and strengthen those relationships, then it's a really good thing. If it's to just voice some sort of frustration with strangers, right, you know, and, and do it in this kind of anonymous way on Twitter, then it's, it, it's again, it's really not paying off. So I think how we manage within the bubbles that we're on on social media could be helpful. And, and for the most part, most of the data suggests that the people who are most outrageous, you know, most outraged rather on these platforms tend to be the ones that are spending the most time on it. So there's an element of, you know, getting off of these platforms and and not being on Twitter for an hour or two hours at a time arguing with people. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. You you make the case that one of the consequences of constantly being bombarded by negative sensational news, the outrage you see on social media is that people develop what you call compassion fatigue. What is that? And uh, is there a way to avoid compassion fatigue? Yeah. So compassion fatigue is a term that was developed by researchers who were looking at those that are working in the medical field or even journalists. And they were people who were exposed to the suffering of others on a, on a regular basis. And Somewhat like attention, people that study this area will tell you that the amount of compassion that we have is actually fixed. Well, that same element of compassion fatigue can, can occur when we're watching sensationalism all the time. And we're seeing this, this again, as I mentioned earlier, this, this constant suffering of others. And then the added element of that is a feeling of powerlessness, right? That we, we can't really 
help the situation. So in, in, um, I profile a doctor who, uh, was a resident in the early eighties in Atlanta when the AIDS crisis was, was really starting to become a major part of our healthcare crisis. And he took up that cause seeing how, how terribly patients were treated then because there was so much fear out there. And when he treated those patients over the, I think, 10 or 12 years that he did that from the mid early 80s to the mid 90s, him and his staff experienced a great deal of compassion fatigue, most notably because not only are they seeing people suffering with a terrible disease, but they couldn't really help them. There really wasn't, medicine wasn't advanced enough to really help them along. And so when you think about compassion fatigue when it comes to us watching the suffering of others on social media or on cable news or whatever it might be. If we have that feeling of help, of, of helplessness, we can't help that suffering. Then we, we're more likely to experience compassion fatigue and we can address that by picking one cause. So if we see five terrible incidents that happened over the course of an, of an hour of cable news and we pick one, you know, maybe it's helping animals in a shelter or giving to the Red Cross or another charity or whatever it might be, that can help us, you know, realize that we can make a difference and kind of address the element of compassion fatigue. And obviously managing our own reaction or lack thereof to seeing that suffering and saying, you know, it's time to turn this off. I'm informed. I understand the situation. I don't need to sit and watch this for another 20 minutes or two hours or whatever. William James, the father of psychology, he wrote a lot about attention. And he actually wrote about, I think, compassion fatigue. He had this quote. I'm going to read it here. He says, there is no more contentable type of human character than that of the nerveless sentimentalist and dreamer who spends his life in a weltering sea of sensibility and emotion, but who never does a manly concrete deed. So it's the same sort of thing. You just, you feel a lot of things, but then you don't do anything. And it sounds like his solution was, okay, if you feel something for something that happened, even if it's far away, well, go do something, go help your neighbor, go call your mother, do something. Don't just let that emotion go to waste because then you become numb to the emotion. That's right. And compassion is an active entity. It's not passive. So you have to do something in order to respond. And with social media, you know, hitting like or making a comment that it's bad is not active. That is, that is still passive. And so absolutely take one thing and, and devote your energy to it to, to make that difference. Yeah. William James was right way back then and it still holds true today. And what do you do about people? It's one of the problems of being on social media is that everyone has their cause that think is the most important. And sometimes they feel like, well, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's like, well, I don't have time. I'm going to focus on, this is my thing. Any tips on, on managing that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, everybody yeah, has a cause on social media, it, but we don't have to respond to it and we don't have to doom scroll through everybody's, what everybody's saying on social media about their cause. If we're saying, you know, my, my response to this terrible tragedy that's happened is to, to give money or volunteer. That's, that's away from social media. And I don't have to post about that. I could just go do that. And, and so to me, it's, you know, it, it's managing the amount of time that we have on social media. If we, if we see what other people's causes are and we become interested in it, you know, because we have a Facebook friend or family member, whatever it might be that's saying, you know, I was really affected by this disease and I'm hoping that, 
you know, everybody that's my friend or a connection here can, you know, can walk for the cause or whatever. All of that's great. But it just seems to me that so many people seem to think that they're checking the box and responding because they're, they're hitting like and making this, creating this kind of artificial reward again on social media. And it's not doing anything. I always laugh at the, you know, the, where they say these, these folks, and this is probably very cynical, but you know, these, these folks are like, this man's a, you know, a decorated World War II veteran. Can we give him a, a hundred thousand likes? I mean, is that really, what exactly is that doing? You know, I'd rather tell him thank you in person or, you know, write him a letter. So we just, we can, we go back to this artificial currency and it's not getting us anywhere. All right. So do a manly concrete deed. That's the, that's the antidote. Do a manly concrete deed. And I mean, if you, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't hit like for the World War II veteran, but we could probably do a little more than just hit like, right? Right. And how much is he really on Facebook, by the way? Yeah, he probably doesn't even know. <laughs> and like his grandson will tell him, he's like, what, what the right. hell does that mean? What's the hell's a like anyway? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> so let's talk about, you have this chapter about Instagram and you highlight all this research that Instagram, when we use Instagram, it can change the way we experience life. When we typically think of like, we are using Instagram to catalog our life, but you're saying that no, Instagram actually changes what we do in life. How so? Yeah, I mean, at a 30,000 foot level, it makes a lot of people, I won't say everyone, but it makes a lot of people become content creators. So if I'm a con, if I see myself as a content creator and I'm going back to the, to the reward structure of getting likes and good comments, then I'm going to pick experiences through the lens as, through the lens as a content creator. So I may say, you know, I know I really should have lunch with my grandparents, but you know, my Instagram followers, they're not going to care for that picture of Nana and Pop Pop and meatloaf and me. I need to do something else to get those likes. Or I go on vacation and I really want to do A, B, and C, but D, E, and F are going to get more likes. So I'm going to go do that. So that's one of the pieces that we that it, we actually start to change the things that we, the decisions, the behaviors that we would like to do. We change them for to be subservient to this role as a, as a content creator. But even thinking about photos in general, you know, we, our memory changes when we, we take a lot of pictures of something. We don't remember things as well. Cause, you know, going back to this idea of attention, we're, we're fixated on our device. We might be changing the, the environment to make it better for our Instagram crowd. So I use the example of a family reunion, right? So we might be thinking, okay, what's a good shot that's going to put my family in the best light, right? I'm not going to take a picture of, you know, my grandfather who's, you know, asleep drooling on the, on the Barca lounger, but I'm going to, I've got to alter experiences so that it looks better. And, and the other part about that too is that when we post pictures of events, whether it's vacations or family reunions or whatnot, we're inviting our followers into that experience, which may or may not be welcome to other people that are part of that experience. So, we essentially, it's, it's, it's great to take photos for memories, for us to remember things that happened in the past. But when we start talking about posting them, it changes the whole dynamic. And it also changes it too, because we tend to post them during the event. And now we're in the dopamine loop during the event. We're, we're, we're posting while the event is still going on. 
And we're going back to check the check Instagram again. Did I get any likes? Now I'm back to my variable reward schedule. So it's okay to post after if it's the actual event. But again, I think we have to ask ourselves, okay, did I change my vacation because I want to be a content creator? Or did I do the things that I wanted to do? And now I'm going to, I'm going to share that with, with people on Instagram. That's healthy. But if it's changing what we want to do in our lives, that may not be healthy. I thought it was interesting too. You, you highlight research. So not only when you take pictures for Instagram of an experience you're having, not only do you remember that experience less because you're so focused on getting the right image and you're, then you're posting it and you're looking for, so your attention's diverted from actually experiencing that moment. But then also people, when they look back on the experience, they actually remember it like less fondly. They had a bad time in a negative light I, I, compared to those who just, I'm just going to enjoy this experience and not not going to spectate. I'm not going to take a third party view to see what this would look like on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's as simple as saying, if I sent you to an experience that you really wanted to go to, and I said, I want you to to work this device throughout that great experience. You'd be like, I don't want to do that. I want to enjoy the experience in and of itself. Right. So it's, it goes back to this idea of our attention and the amount of attention we have to devote to certain experiences. And it also, again, goes back to what it is that we actually want to do and not altering that based upon what we see ourselves as a content creator. And by the way, you know, there's, there's research out there that shows that, you know, even when it comes to our devices and experiences, I mean, we have 10% of people say that they picked up their phone during sex. I mean, I don't know if they're posting pictures on Instagram of it, but I mean, you know, it, it, we're altering our experiences because of this element of attention and dopamine. And I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't think there was data that talked to the other partner that was part of that, but it's, I can't imagine that it was seen, you know, favorably. <laughs> No, I imagine not. And speaking of how our behavior has changed because of, you know, because we're doing it for the gram. Last week, my wife and I, we drove to New Mexico, went to Santa Fe for a few days. On the way there, you know, we're passing through Amarillo. And uh, in Amarillo, there's this thing called the Cadillac Ranch. Have you heard of the Cadillac Ranch? I have, yes. Yeah. So, you know, these Cadillacs that are buried at an angle, like the nose end. And, so, you know, I used to go to New Mexico all the time as a kid because I, I got family there. And you drive by the Cadillac Ranch and like, no one was ever there. It was just like these, it was like, this is a goofy thing. I drove by last week and there was this ginormous line, just lot, just a huge line of people. There was a taco truck and I guess it's become this Instagram destination. <laughs> people take pictures of themselves in front of the Cadillac Ranch. And I just thought it was so bizarre. If it weren't for Instagram, I don't think anyone would be standing in line to check this stuff out. Yeah. And you know, you would love to, to ask those same people a year from now. So what was your experience like at the Cadillac Ranch? And they might talk to you about how they drove way out of their way to get there, right? <laughs> um, and how much of an effort it was. Are they going to, and nothing against the Cadillac Ranch, but are the they going to say that it was a great experience? I mean, you, you know, again, it goes back to, to this ROI. Well, it's on Instagram. How many likes did you get? You know, it, it goes back to that artificial reward. Okay. So uh, with Instagram, be a little more thoughtful. You don't have to like enjoy the experience for what it is. Snap a picture of you. And then if you're, I mean, I found like for like personal experiences, I only share pictures with like close friends and family. I don't have a public facing personal Instagram account because I just want that stuff for me and my family. And I don't know, that seems to work for me. Other people's mileage may vary. 
That's the, that, and that's, you know, most people, most researchers would say the approach that you're taking is exactly right. That whether it's Instagram or Facebook, you know, if we're using the platform to share and strengthen relationships with people we know and people that we care about, sharing that we went to X, Y, and Z is a good thing, right? Or sharing part of our day. That's a good thing. But the whole dynamic changes when we start engaging and sharing with people that we don't know, you know, and, and we didn't talk much about FOMO here, but you know, if I know people on my Facebook and they start posting these curated versions of their lives, you know, that it seems like they're on vacation all the time, you know, I can say to myself, well, you know, that's, you know, that's John, you know, John's always, I know John, John's life ain't that great. He's using filters there and he goes on vacation you know, once every two years and he spreads out those photos. That's okay. That's fine. But when we have people we don't know, now FOMO starts to, 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 to come into the picture where we start to say, well, wait a minute, look at their lives. Why isn't my life like that? And we actually start to question our own choices. We start to say, well, wait a minute. Why aren't I doing those things? So, you know, working within a certain sphere of people that we have relationships, seems to be very healthy when it comes to social media. But when we get beyond that, it gets a little bit tougher for us to to understand and, and think about what our what our expectations are. So we've talked about different areas of the our internet lives where our attention is being fought for and things we can do to rest back control. But like big picture, like what do you think someone who's listening to this podcast can start doing today? to take back their attention and like be more intentional about how they use the internet so they don't feel numb? I, I think the first thing is, is, as we mentioned earlier, is this reflective process. Is the time that you're allocating towards these platforms getting you to where your goals are? Your goals for your career, your goals for your you know remodeling your home, your goals for your relationships and your personal life, or your experiences, whatnot, is it, is it really working for you? Or are you in a habit of distraction where you just habitually go and doom scroll on some of these platforms or argue with people and become outraged? So that's the, that's the first element. And I think related to that is, is, are you using it as a tool? Is it a tool for deeper relationships? You know, whether it's a dating app or whether it's Facebook or Instagram, is it leading you to more authenticity? Or are you finding, like some of the data that are coming out now, or is it making you more lonely, where you're investing more and more time and attention on these platforms that you're not, you know, you're not, you're not engaging people authentically, or you're on your phone with your, with your, your spouse or, or partner, and it's actually taking away from the relationship that you have. So, if we can think about these things as tools and not destinations, and again, think critically about what they're designed to do, we're each going to be better off. And knowing that we all know that our time is valuable, but our attention is just as valuable or more valuable. And we have an opportunity, hopefully through the book and, and through this reflective process to, to say, you know what? I'm taking it back. I'm going to manage it towards what my goals are, towards traction rather than distraction. Well, Charles, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I, I appreciate that. You know, you could you could find Numb 
on all the major platforms. It's available hardback, ebook, audiobook. I also have the the Num Podcast, which just started last month. I noticed that that you all have 2.5 million downloads a month, and so you know that means between our two podcasts, we have 2.5 million downloads. <laughs> but we're just getting started there. But we walk through all of the different elements of the book, so I encourage folks to look at that. and And obviously, if you're interested in more, go to charleschafin.com. All right, Charles Chafin, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Dr. Charles Chafin. He's the author of the book, Numb. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, charleschafin.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash numb, where you find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to use your review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or a family member who you think we something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>